Hey everybody, welcome back to D3 Glory Days. Couple announcements here at the top. One, we have launched entries to the D3 Glory Days replacement meet. That's right, if you are a Division Three student or coach, we are hosting a virtual meet. So you can head to our website or check the show notes to a link for more info there. Secondly, we are launching a worldwide search for D3 Glory Days employee number three. That's right. We are hiring. If you're interested, we're looking for somebody to help us out on the social media side and uh, also help us with the curation of a newsletter that we're going to start producing soon. If you have those skills uh, or interested at all, check the uh, show notes here or check our website. We'll include all the relevant details and how to apply. Lastly, if you're interested in supporting our show, you can check the show notes. There's a link to buy us a coffee or you can check out our merch store. It helps us a lot with hosting costs and everything else. But anyway, we got a great episode here for you today. Stu, who is joining us? Yeah, we're joined by Allison Wade, the founder and owner of Fast Women. It's a newsletter. It's a Twitter account. It's coverage of women's running from high school all the way to the pro level. She does a fantastic job of giving all fans information on how to follow women's running. And she went to a division three school. She graduated from Bowdoin. From there, she pursued a career covering running with stops at the New York Roadrunner Runners World and coaching trips at three different D3 colleges. It was great to hear her take on women's competitive running, what needs to change, and what she's excited about. We think you'll really enjoy this episode. If you're interested in following Allison's work, check the show notes for her newsletter and for her Twitter account. Thanks, Stu. Thank you, Allison. Yeah, sit back, relax for this conversation, and then we'll catch you on the other side of it. Until then, here's to the glory days. All right, welcome back to D3 Glory Days. We're excited to bring you this one. Today, we're joined by Allison Wade, aka Fast Women. She's known for her newsletter that covers women's running. Allison, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, we're excited to learn more about you as our unofficial series is Life After D3. And so some people may not know that you went to a D3 college, you went to Bowdoin up in Maine. So to get things started, tell us how you found Bowdoin. I actually found Bowdoin when I was in high school, I was reading Joan Benoit Samuelson's autobiography. It's kind of embarrassing way to find Bowdoin, but that's, that's the, I remember asking someone, how do you pronounce that? And um, I mean, it was the kind of school I was looking at anyway. And I think having Joan Bonnet Samuelson as an alum, like definitely drew me in a little bit more. Plus they had a, they had one of the top ranked teams in New England at the time. Um, so, you know, it just, I, I ended up applying there early. So it was the only school I ever applied to. So doing research, you grew up in Amherst, right? And so was Amherst College ever an option for you? No way. I lived about two miles from campus. So I was not going to go there, but, you know, like going back later, it's like a lovely school and my husband went there, um, but yeah, needed to also could have gone to UMass for free um, because my father worked there, but um, we needed to get out of town if we grew up there. How important was running to you in high school and how much did it weigh in your college decision? Did you always know you wanted to go run after high school or was it just kind of something you were interested in pursuing yeah, running was always pretty huge to me. My sport was always huge to me. Like I was a gymnast before um, and I quit that when I was 15. So I picked up running a little bit late, but took the same level of like intensity into running right away, um, even though I was pretty new to it. And I I pretty much like chose the college I went to. <laughs> like academics were important, but it was sort of like all the schools I was looking at were good. So I chose it like 100% on the, on the running in some ways because all the, a lot of the other factors were pretty similar. Is there a bronze statue, Joan, on campus somewhere? I don't know if it's of her. I'm, I feel like a bad alum for not knowing the answer to that question. 
did you ever have any interaction with her when you were when you were there did she keep in touch with the program she did a little bit i think she was less involved then um maybe because of the age of her kids um i think she's more involved now but i did one i think it was during the summer i babysat her kids but like only a, a little bit like they, she was doing some talk at a camp and a, I watched them for a while. So that was my only real interaction. And then this this year I wrote an article for the alumni magazine and that involved interviewing her. So that was pretty cool. Cool. Yeah, she's on our guest bucket list. Yeah, that would be awesome. I have not, I don't think I've heard her on a podcast yet. So that would be a, a good get. Cool. You can send us her number. Don't ask her, just send it to us. <laughs> <Sounds good. laughs> You mentioned wanting to find a school that was good at running. So take us through your high school days then. You know, what were your PRs heading into college and how was that transition to a national ranked team? Well, let's see. My PRs were not very impressive. They, I was like a 530, 12 flat kind of person. Um, I, I was a little bit better in cross country. I never really ran. I only ran two seasons of track in high school because I studied abroad. Like in, I was in Russia my sophomore year. Um, so came back in like the end of the season, having not trained, so didn't go very well, but um, I, you know, I was pretty good. Like I, I um, set the course record on our high school home course, which like at the time felt like a big deal. And I could, I could barely break 19 in the 5k. Um, but I was like, I've never been a running superstar. I, you know, we did win the state championship my junior year of high school. And that was pretty fun. And I just always loved being on a good team. So I wanted to continue to be on a good team. With Bowdoin, your sophomore year, you end up being the fifth runner when they play seventh at the time. And I think it still is their highest finish. You can correct me if I'm wrong there. You know, what did that mean for you to come in and help a team achieve their best finish of all time? It was cool. I mean, I, like, I didn't think that was a good race for me. That was my only appearance at nationals and I was 101st. I remember that. Um, but I, I got really sick at like the, I forget whether it was right before regionals or right after regionals. So I was like, just like coming back for that race and, you know, I was happy to contribute, but um, it was, I don't know, it was, it was a cool experience to do that. And probably the highlight of my college running career, unfortunately, <laughs> but um, I loved the team experience, even when my own running wasn't going well, like I found a ton of ways to contribute to the team. Like I was my coach's office assistant for four years. I did recruiting calls for him. I was like team photographer when I was too injured to run. And so there was like, so the thing I loved about the team was there were so many ways to be involved, even when I couldn't run well. And then I actually transferred um, briefly to Penn State my junior year and then transferred back. Um, and that was just like a really interesting comparison experience and like not at all the same. Um, and not in a good way. And so like, I, it made me appreciate what I had at that school. Was the move to Penn State running related or was, did you transfer for other reasons? No, it was, um, it was running related in the sense that I wanted to work. I knew that I wanted to work in athletics after college and at Bowdoin, there wasn't really anything I could study that was very specific to that. Like I wanted an exercise physiology degree and had thought, okay, I'll major in biology and then do that for grad school. But it just felt like a long time to wait to study what I wanted to study. But then um, after I transferred, I had foot surgery at Penn State. That was, um, it was a great surgeon. So I'm glad I went there to get the best <laughs> surgeon, but it was just like a not so great experience otherwise. So I, I just said, oh, well, I'll just major in something else and went back to Bowdoin where like everything else about the experience was like more comfortable. We were kind of talking off mic about, you know, the depth of your injury struggles in college um it sounds like you were you know injured more often than you were healthy i think a lot of people have that experience of being injured on their college team and seeing things happen around them around them and that could be a really difficult experience what were some strategies that you used to, to keep yourself as happy as possible during those times of injury Honestly, I don't know if I did keep myself as happy as possible. Um, I think. Yeah, that's why I said as possible because I know I couldn't, you can't just say happy. because yeah. I, I think, I think we know much more about mental health now. And so like the conversations that people have around all of that now, like even just in sports in general, like are so different. But I mean, to me, there, there was a point during college where I thought I was never, ever going to be able to run again. Like I just thought the sport was it, like done for me. 
and that was like a really difficult struggle for me but at the same time like I could still always be happy for what my teammates were doing and I always like loved cheering them on even when I personally was like devastated over my own experience but like my fifth year of college because I because of the transfer I had to like do piece it together and get a fifth year I I did get to run again and like I was way slower because I had just taken like two straight years off of running but it was like also such a like I was so relieved like I was so grateful for just the ability to be able to run again because I just thought that it was gone forever to pull like division three into it that that's kind of a unique part about division three is that you can be pretty far off your best but still have a place on a team if you want to if you want to run um it's kind of participatory in that aspect did you ever like acknowledge that while you were there just like oh it's cool that i'm at this school in this division where i can kind of pick back up i think in some division one schools it's not like they would kick you off the team if you were not running your i mean maybe you lose your scholarship or something but I think that's what I love about division three in general is like the developmental aspect of it. And I, I loved as, when I coached in division three later, I loved that we would like, you know, a lot of schools I'd been at would be like, Oh no, we don't, we won't consider a kid of that speed. But then I went to schools like where or I coached at schools where they did accept those kids. And then you saw them become all Americans or whatever, like that, you know, you really never know what someone's potential is. And I think a lot of, the people who end up going into division one is just because they've realized more of that potential by the time they're seniors in high school, not because they're necessarily, you know, better. Um, so I really, I love the developmental aspect and the welcoming aspect. And I think there could even be more of it. I like, sometimes I coached in programs where they didn't consider kids that, you know, went on to do great things at other schools. With that in mind, you know, what was your team like through your years there? Yeah, we were really close. We had a, um, I thought coach Peter Slominski did a really good job of making the team important, you know, putting health above all else. Like he was having conversations with us about getting regular periods when, you know, like even now coaches aren't necessarily staying on top of that, but like he was doing that however many years ago that was. So um, I, I think it didn't mean that we always had a healthy team, but it meant that like we were talking about it and it, we knew what was, um, you know, what was what the coach valued and and you know contrast that to my experience at Penn State where I felt like the coach valued the exact opposite of that so um yeah it was a it was a great team I think there were it it fluctuated in terms of like the team dynamics over the time like when people graduated but um I really especially my first two years there I really loved the team atmosphere so it sounds like by your fifth year, you're kind of starting to get your legs back under you, under you after a long layoff. When you finished that year and graduated, where was your head at and what were your ambitions, um, like career-wise, but also with your own running? Yeah, um, career-wise, it was hard because like, you know, you watch all your friends, like the recruiters are coming to campus and they're like, you know, looking, talking to people about these jobs. And I was like, I have no idea what I want to do because there was no, nobody, from my school was doing the things that I wanted to do. Like, um, it just didn't feel like professional enough or like fancy enough. Like it was just like, um, I wanted to work in sports and um, they were all going into investment banking or, you know, saving the world some other way. Um, not other way, but saving the world. And so, I mean, I, I graduated from Bowdoin and I went home for the summer and I worked at a, a health club as the front desk person. And like that, I was like, oh, wow, this is like, this is going to be my life now. I, I mean, like, I just, I thought about going to grad school, but. Um, I was doing that like a few years ago. I like yeah. working at the front desk of a health yeah. club, wondering <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> so I, I, I think I applied to a bunch of things. Like I thought about going into coaching, but the offers that I had were just not like feasible. Um, I ended up getting an internship with the Women's Sports Foundation um, and it paid $600 a month and my rent was $700 a month. Um, so it wasn't like the most glamorous thing, but um, I, yeah, I moved to Long Island and did that. Um, running wise, I was like pretty determined because I was like, I was angry that I graduated from college. Like, I mean, I was happy that I was finally healthy, but I was like, you're better than this at running. And so, I graduated from college with the, the goal of like beating my high school PRs, basically. I think a lot of people fall into that category of wanting to either not having the career they wanted and to continue running, um, but to sidetrack 
from, from that, you know, with hindsight in our favor now, was, was writing ever a venture you explored in college while you're injured or just in general, or where did this writing maybe come from in your career? Um, it's come by accident mostly because, I mean, I did take a high school journalism class, but that's like my only training. And so I'm still pretty insecure about my ability to write because I feel like there's like secret things that other people know that I don't. But at the Women's Sports Foundation, you had to like pick a specialty and I was the publications intern. So I guess it started there. And then that those were like fixed length internships and I was there nine months and then um, I got a job well, actually, we started, we, my friend and I, we um, read about Girls on the Run, and we wanted to start a Girls on the Run program in New York City, so we flew down and got the training, and um, we tried to start a Girls on the Run program. We did start one, but then, like, it was, it's really hard to make money, like, living in New York City and just, like, doing a program for kids and, like, starting your own business when you're right out of college, so, um, in our talks for Girls on the Run, we had connected with New York Roadrunners and I met Mary Wittenberg, um, who was the, well, she became the CEO and president eventually. And at some point we just, we both decided to just get jobs because it was like such a relief to have like benefits and um, you know, the security of a job. So I ended up going to New York Roadrunners and my friend went somewhere else, but yeah, so there was a brief Girls on the Run detour there as well. And, but at New York Roadrunners, I wrote for their magazine um, even though I still felt like I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> what did your own training look like? Did you link up with a coach? Did you have any training partners? Um, how were you going about trying to beat your high school PRs? I did train with a team in New York City. The, I think the club scene there, like it was pretty strong, but I think it's really different now. And I think it would have been a lot cooler to graduate now. Um, but yeah, I trained with a team and I didn't last very long in New York City. I was only, I only lived there for a year or two. Um, and then I moved home to Amherst and kept working for New York Roadrunners. And that's when my running got a lot better. I think I just liked running in Amherst better. <laughs> I was tired of running around Central Park. Um, and yeah, so like I ended up doing my best training probably by myself um, because there just wasn't anyone to train with in Amherst. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was just on my own, but I like the, the thing with training on my own was like, I would get in races and I would be so excited to be running with people. <laughs> so I would, that would motivate me. When you went back to Amherst, is that when you started coaching at the high school then? Yeah. Yeah. So I was working from home. I was like the only possibly remote employee at New York Roadrunners and it like, that was not a smooth process in any way. Um, but I was just like, I need to get out of the house. Um, so I started volunteering. My friends, my high school teammate's father was the coach um, and he, he wasn't our coach, but he had become the coach and they had a just like an amazing program going at that point. And I just, that was like my four happiest years of coaching probably. I loved, like I never wanted to stop coaching there. It was, I think that's the ideal coaching role is being a volunteer assistant high school coach because there's no responsibility, but you get like all, all the fun. And that was like just such an amazing program in terms of their team culture and their traditions. And like, you know, I don't know, I learned so much from being a part of that program the second time around. I've been um, volunteering with the Boulder High um, High School team for the last couple of years. And I've really found that to be true. Like I really don't have to handle like any of the logistics I just get to be kind of the, the cool assistant coach there cheering for the workouts, but it's also like very fulfilling to view running through their eyes. And I found it to be really influential and in just how I approach the sport. Absolutely. I remember when I started, I was thinking like, I don't know anything. And then they ask you their questions and you're like, oh, I can answer that. Like, I do know that. Um, and yeah. And I was sort of like, yeah, the big sister, whereas the, the coach, the head coach was like the, the bad guy when he had to be. And I, you know, I don't know. It was just, it was great. The only reason I stopped doing it is that my husband got into grad school in the Boston area. Otherwise I'd probably still be doing that. And so we moved. Um, he was at Tufts. So I actually, I thought I was going to stop coaching, but the New York Roadrunners commuting and remote work got harder when we moved to Boston. Um, so I ended up deciding to quit that job. Um, and go into coaching, which was probably like not a good career move. <laughs> um, but um, 
I don't know, maybe I would regret it if I had never tried it. Um, so I, um, I like, I think I did that for a little while longer, but then I started, I, I just, he, because my husband was at Tufts, I went to the coach there and said, do you need any help? And so I started volunteering there. Yeah, and you, it looks like you you stayed in D three and then made a switch to D one, kind of like your your career, college career, I should say, and then went back to D three after being in some in some D one programs. You know, having both the experience as an athlete and a coach at the Div- Division three and D one level, you know, what were the differences that you could see on a day to day basis that maybe are more drastic than the assumptions people like to make? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of similarities in terms of like, you know, just great kids, but all of my coaching experiences in division one just made me more sure that I wanted to be in division three. I had two very, very different division one coaching experiences because one was at university of Virginia. I was only there very briefly. I had very little influence over like what was going on in the program. I was more of like an observer there, but I just felt like there, it was like a business. It was a job. Um, I felt that the priorities were like, and this is no, no criticism of anyone who runs division one. And, you know, but I just feel like the priorities were not what I think they should be for a college program. Like you leave on Wednesday. Nobody who runs division one is listening to this podcast. So you can (laughs) speak speak freely. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I just felt like if you're only in class, like half the time, like, I don't know, it changes your experience. And the nice thing, because I did a lot of coaching in New England, like we have it pretty good here because you get on, you know, fast indoor tracks and get good competition without having to really go anywhere either. But like, it just felt like some unnecessary, like, you know, let's fly to New York just for the heck of it kind of stuff. And then I coached in a division one program that had fewer resources than any of the division three programs that I was part of. So that was a very different thing. But every time I was in division one, it was just because there were more coaching opportunities there, not because I actually chose it. When you moved into coaching and left your job with the Roadrunners, how did that journalistic piece of you fit in? Were you still doing any writing on the side or did your focus kind of switch entirely to coaching and you kind of forgot about that part? Yeah, when I left New York Roadrunners, I had to give up the websites that I started, which was very sad for me, but they they owned the, I had sold it to the, well, Fast Women was one that I started while I was there and I had sold it to them. So I just couldn't do it anymore but I had already like reserved the domain eliterunning.com. So I started doing the same kind of content on that website. It never got the attention that the other two did like when I was doing it for New York Roadrunners. So it felt like, it felt like doing the same work, but like getting, not getting paid for it and, you know, having not as many people notice it. Um, so I did that for a whole bunch of years. It overlapped with my coaching. I only really stopped doing that when I was at Virginia and they told me that I couldn't like, there was some sort of, NCA violation potentially and like I don't know saying anything about a high school runner so that was the only place that they but I like I continued bringing my camera to races because even like you know at these schools like they want good photos of their athletes or um, you know it would be even probably more so now now that there's more social media but I yeah I, I kept bringing my even when I was like a head coach, I brought my camera because I was like, there's no sports info person doing this. So we need some publicity photos. So um, it wasn't so much writing, but it was more taking photos because I could do that. But then also like, you know, not have it interfere too much with the coaching piece. Why was it important to you to continue to do this? Like you said, it was the same work. You just weren't being paid for it. Um, What motivated you to keep, keep it up? I don't really remember. I, I think it was like who I was at that point. Like it was habit. And I, I loved the, I like, I had this ideal life before children where like we would travel around all these events and I would, you know, like my husband was a reporter at the time and he, he would have to like sit way up in the stadiums. And I got to like sit on the track at the Olympic trials and like, you know, watch the events, the best seat in the house. I, I loved that stuff. And it was like, some of it was just habit, but some of it, I just loved watching the races and you get a front row seat as a photographer. So yeah, but then like, you know, coaching really, like I, I put everything, eventually I put everything, for a while I was just a volunteer and, um, but eventually I put everything I had into coaching. So like, there was just no time for it, but also like, I just, you know, once you have kids, it's like a lot harder <laughs> to travel around the country and go to all these events. So You've been to a lot of high-end running events, but how special was it to be coaching at Amherst with the women when they won their national title? It was really cool. It was a, an interesting year. Like, I mean, they had almost won the national title the year before. So 
and I wasn't part of the program then. So I come in and like, you know, we win the national title and, but it was sort of like almost a, you know, a given. And I felt like a lot of the season was a lot of, like, I think they felt the pressure of that. And when they won, they actually didn't think, well, the head coach told them that they didn't win. Um, and so they were like, you know, I, I had gone to some like far off part of the course so I could like cheer and take photos. And so I kind of missed it. And like, I, I thought they had won because I had like waited, I was taking, I had like photographic evidence of what order people came in. But then like, I came back and they were all like really upset. And he's like, yeah, not our best day. And, um, and then I was like, I think it might've been okay. Like, um, and yeah, and then when they, they won. So it like, it felt, they were thrilled. I felt like I was just coming in for the last part of the journey for all of them. But like, um, I, lo I loved the people on that team. Like I thought they were such neat kids. And, you know, there were a lot of like, I, I don't think that that team was like the, you know, I don't know, the happiest team or the most like, I don't know, like the best chemistry or camaraderie or anything of any team I've coached, but it was, it was definitely an accomplishment. Um, and I, and I think that the people that were on that team were just such great kids and like, really, I don't know, just, I, I, I think Amherst College is, well, I don't want to insult any other college, but I think they really attract neat kids. So as you progressed throughout your coaching career and left behind your fastwomen.com, it's now.org, you know, what, what was the motivation to bring it back to life? I know it's kind of, we jumped some years there, but was there anything in between fastwomen.com and fastwomen.org that made you want to bring it back to life? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the years that we jumped, I, you know, had this like ugly exit from coaching thought, okay, now what am I going to do with my life? Like I have nothing like, you know, and like, I don't know, a lot of my qualifications, like you, it, it, they don't translate necessarily to other careers, but, um, I ended up writing for runner's world and I did that for a bunch of years. Um, and I think, so I was kind of staying on top of the news, but in my writing for runner's world, there was somebody else who did a lot of the elite, um, coverage. And so I was writing about like the average runner a lot more, which was, um, fun, but I missed, you know, being able to like be a running nerd kind of, um, and, I thought for like, I, for a long time, I thought I wanted to like re-enter running, but it, like I had taken like 10, like anyone who ever knew who I was like 10 years ago, like did not know who I was anymore. Um, so like, like, you know, some people like do these things and they have a following on social media. I had done nothing to like cultivate a following on social media because I didn't see the point of it. Um, so like, I thought a lot about how to re-enter and my, um, my editor from Runner's World, or one of my editors, um, she was the one who had like for a year told me to start a newsletter. And I was like, why would I, what do I have to say? Like, what, why should anyone listen to me? Um, but then I think I just convinced myself that if the mission is to spread, you know, like help people follow women's running, like that felt like a more, like that's less about me. That's more about like just sharing the sport with other people and um, providing a service that makes it easier versus like, there's so many things I could have put out that I feel like would have just duplicated a lot of what's already out there. Like 20 years ago, you could like do anything and you'd be original, but now like there's so many people doing things already that it's hard to like do something that's not duplicating someone else's work. So that was how I, why I came back in the form that I came back and, and I thought it was going to be really easy because I, my first newsletter took like two hours and, or less and that's what I thought it was going to be. And then now it's like my whole entire weekend is devoted to the newsletter. Yeah, I did some, I, I copy and pasted a few of them just to get an idea of length. So your most recent one was 3000 words. You cover maybe five to six running podcasts. And then there's a whole slew of articles mentioning women's running or certain competitors. You know, I would love to hear your kind of weekend or week of consuming all of this running content that you're doing and then being able to nicely summarize literally the week in running that week. Yeah, it's and it's changed a little bit during the pandemic because I feel like I used to stay more on top of things during the week. Now it's a little bit more of like recover from my like exhausting weekend for the first few days of the week and then and then bookmark a lot of stuff and like try to catch on up on all of it at the end of the week. Um but yeah, I've, I've, spending, I've been spending less time on social media recently because I just feel like it 
has gotten really like, I don't know, because we can't do as much stuff these days. Like I just feel like the more time, I, my life doesn't get better the more time I spend on social media. So um, I've been like giving myself a you know pass if I miss something, but um, I, yeah. So I'm like maybe not on top of every single detail, but I also feel like there has been less news to find anyway, um, because especially when things are really picking up now, which is like a little bit surprising how much they picked up, but um, yeah, so like I spend, I don't know, this weekend I'm already nervous because there's like a million things happening and like all these all at once and um, I can already tell it's going to be a tiring weekend but um, and I never intend for the newsletter to be 3000 words I always intend for it to be way shorter but then or you like I'll get to a week and be like okay nothing happened this week but then once you sit down and like look at everything you've bookmarked and listen to all the podcasts or you know or like some surprise race pops up then suddenly you have five pages of writing. Is it difficult to balance the newsletter with a social media presence? Because, you know, attention spans are very short on social media. You have to be precise, you know, punchy, limited word availability. But in the newsletter, you can really go deep. How, how is the relationship between the two developed? Yeah, um, I mean, I actually, before I started the newsletter, I did, like, I sort of, like, tested the waters by starting to, like, tweet a little bit more. Um, like, for years, I had, I had the Fast Women... Um, Twitter handle reserved in like 2012 so like and I used it a little bit then so I obviously like had something in mind for the future but then I didn't use it for like six years but I felt like it was um that was a good way to like start out because I had like 200 Twitter followers and like if you say something stupid like nobody sees it um and like so you get, get more comfortable with it over time but I I like Twitter because I like it just being facts or thoughts um Instagram I am like too old for it or something. I don't know. Like I just, and then I like, I don't have a, because I was a photographer for a while, like I feel very strongly about not just like borrowing someone else's photo. Like a lot of people do these days and, you know, crediting them, even if you don't have permission. So like I, half the time I'm like, I don't have a photo. Like I, I want to, I would post something about this, but I don't have a photo that I have permission to use. So I'm still figuring Instagram out. I'm, you know, like just not the, the right age for it or something, but, um, I, like I, I, I find it exhausting to write an, ex, an Instagram post sometimes. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm much more of a words person, I think. Um, and it's definitely written words, not spoken words. Um, but yeah, like it surprises me how much energy social media takes. And I wonder if other people do it more effortlessly. Um, but I do feel for pro runners every time I try to like, I'm like, oh yeah, I need to promote this or whatever. Like that's not the stuff that comes naturally to me. It's easier for me, like Twitter, if I'm just like, tweeting what's happening or happening in a race that's fun to me and I love like watching a marathon and tweeting um but yeah like the rest of it I could you know I could do without it if I if I had a choice so fast woman originated in 2000 how did you come up with that name it's very straightforward and to the point was that the goal of it yeah my my boyfriend slash now husband thought of it and I don't know I was like sure and I'm, I'm just not good at coming up with names so like it's just stuck because I didn't have anything else better in the last 20 years. I was going to ask you about the discrepancy in coverage between men and women's um, athletics, because that, that must've been a main motivator for you to start fast women or, or was it? Originally it was, um, there was like a website before let's run.com. Um, they had this poll that was like, who's going to win the NCAA mile. And they had like all these men's names as options. And, I was like, you didn't ask about the women, um, but you didn't say men's mile. Um, and like back then, and even still now, like a lot of the fan coverage was coming from men, um, boys sometimes. Um, and it that's still the case somewhat. Like if you think like where Sidious Mag came from, you think where Let's Run came from, Flow Track, like those were all men. I think that those like outlets do a better job now of covering the women too. Um, back then I didn't feel like that at all. I felt like it was like some guy's passion pro project and he forgot about the women. Um, so that's where it originally came from. Um, now I sometimes feel sorry for the men because I'm like, I don't know. I just, I feel like they're, I don't know. I don't know if it's like, maybe it's that I just don't follow as many men, but it also might be that like men don't have as much of a presence on social media. Um, I think, and therefore like I don't know. I, I do feel like sometimes the women get more attention now. I don't know if you, do you feel the same way? 
I don't, I don't know. I think there are definitely a lot of women who do a really good job with social media and their social media marketing. Like Colleen Quigley does an amazing job, you know, just like putting herself out there and treating her image like a business, you know, in a way that I think a lot of men, I don't know, aren't doing right now. Um, so yeah, in that way, I think, I think women are probably doing a better job on social. Um, but also like American women specifically are really crushing it on like a global competition stage in a way that I'm not sure the men have fully caught up to yet. And so, yeah, I think that attention is deserved, I guess, is the point I'm trying to, to make. Yeah. And I still feel like there's a, a enthusiasm discrepancy. Like when a man does something exciting, like there is still more enthusiasm for it because it's like, you know, I don't know, it's the fastest anyone has gone or whatever. And, you know, the women is just the fastest the women have gone. So that's kind of where I would like to, I'd like to make more like, I mean, I want men to follow too, but I want more like female running nerds, I guess, um, who care about this stuff. And there's been a huge jump. And like, I, when I used to be like really into this stuff, I felt like I was one of the only women, but now it's like, oh, there's tons of us out there. Yeah, in a different podcast, I think uh, more than running with Dana Giordano, you mentioned that you would sometimes be reluctant to say you ran a women's running newsletter because you wouldn't find someone as excited about women's running as you were. And you mentioned now it's starting to change. You know, what are these conversations now like saying that, yes, Fast Women is my newsletter? Well, I mean, I think it's still weird to have a newsletter. Like if you say that's your job, um, like my one of my relatives is like your blog. And I'm like, no, it's not a blog. Um, and yeah, I mean, I like, I just, I tell people I work in the running industry. That's like a lot easier. Um, but yeah, like there's definitely, and also newsletters are becoming more mainstream in a strange way. Like I just signed up for a newsletter class that someone recommended that it's a free class and there was like 3000 people in it. And so I think it's going to become the next podcast um, if it hasn't already, but yeah, like the next new trend. Um, but yeah, I, I still think it's like strange to have a running newsletter, but um, people in the running industry understand at least now in the beginning, it was like even, I feel like things have changed for the newsletter landscape even over the last two years. Since you've been covering women's running, competitive elite running um, since let's say 2000 to put a year on it, maybe even earlier, you know, where do you think the shift has come? As you mentioned, they, they're doing better on a national and global stage. If you look at participation numbers in terms of just Olympic trials, there was over 400 women that qualified. You know, where do you think the surge has been coming from? I think it's been coming from like all directions. I mean, everyone's improving because we know more about training. We have, you know, the internet was very new when I started. Um, so we have like so much more information. Social media has changed things because now it's like, you don't even have to have a subscription to anything or like follow a special website. You could just follow someone. And I wonder sometimes if it's like going to be bad for high school running down the road. Like, I don't, are we building a you know, future like amazing elite runners because these high school runners are like so amazing already or is, are we setting people up for burnout because they're already following elite like schedules as you know high schoolers. Um, but you know there's just so many things like the, the social media piece on so many levels like there's so much more motivation like you I remember when I joined Instagram like in the mid 20 teens um, and it was just like, oh, there's other people getting up at 5 a.m. to run. And like, it's just all these little things that like, when you feel like you're less alone, you're, you know, it's easier to get out the door. Um, and just the community that has come, that has come from that. Um, I do think shoes are helping as well. And I, I think people who are older right now, it's like, they're, it's the perfect timing. Cause like, right when you might be slowing down, the shoe technology is coming along and giving you a little boost. Um, and yeah, I think there's just so many things like women's running specifically, participation numbers are way up, like a lot of events. I don't like, I don't think I always realize how close, like if I had been born much earlier, like how much different my experience would have been. And like, in terms of like, I mean, the first running Olympics that I paid attention to was like 1992, but like, I mean, I, I, we did notice that the steeplechase didn't exist like when I was in college and stuff, but, um, but like, I mean, the 10K was only added in 1988. Like there's just a lot in the steeplechase, not till 2008. Um, so it's just a lot of like, you know, 
if you once you once Colleen Quigley, you know, jumps over barriers, like maybe you want to try it too. There's so many, um, you know, there's so much accessibility in terms of like how you can learn about runners now and who like who you can follow. And I don't know, there's just it's so many different things all happening at once, but it's um it's definitely like a, such a change. And I also think, oh, I guess a huge piece of it um, is also nutrition. Like I feel like we had really bad nutrition advice when I was in high school and college. And now like, even if people are still not like always doing the wisest things, like, you know, eating disorders are still 100% an issue, but, um, but at least there's so much better information out there in terms of like longevity in your career and um, how you can like work through these things and how, like when I was coming up, it was like all low fat everything. And like, um, I just don't like everyone. I don't think anyone was healthy or like many people were healthy because of that. As a fan, who are some of your favorite athletes to follow now and looking back who have been some of your favorite kind of all time? Um, as a pseudo member of the media, I always feel like I'm not allowed to have favorites, but um, <laughs> so I but said, as a fan, as a fan with it. <laughs> there's, um, I, like, I loved like Lynn Jennings, like she was the, the big name and she was also kind of local for us. Um, and I'm not trying to think who else I really looked up to. I mean, I, this is like embarrassing. I wrote fan letters to like some of these people when I was in high school. And like, I, like I had a letter from Dina Castor from when she was in college. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I looked up to everyone when I was in high school. Um, but now it's really different because like, I haven't, we didn't know anything about Lynn Jennings personality, really. Like there would be like a couple magazine articles or newspaper article. And like, you didn't know what she stood for or like anything about her, but now with social media, like you can form your opinions in like such a different way. It's not just like how they race. It's, you know, um, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I love a lot of the ones who are like speaking out on issues and um, like, I'm really like, today I'm happy with Nikki Hiltz cause she's talking, speaking out in favor of transgender runners. So she's my favorite today, um, <laughs> but uh, it's always rotating. And uh, yeah, I just, it's really fun to watch. And um, I really appreciate the ones who are like taking a stand on important issues and using their platforms for positive change. When you stopped the newsletter in 06 and then brought it back in, or excuse me, when you stopped the website in 06 and then brought it back to a newsletter form in, in 2019, did you anticipate the support you would receive or the following that you would receive from this? I had like absolutely no idea what to expect because I just didn't like, I don't know. I didn't know. The, the thing that has surprised me occasionally is that people were like, oh yeah, I followed the original Fast Woman. And I didn't, I think most running fans are relatively new to the sport. Like, I just, I don't think there's, I think there's been so much growth that a lot, like everyone I know is like, took it up as an adult now. Um, but there's like, I just keep finding more people who are like, oh yeah, I followed the original Fast Woman. So um I think some of those people have re reappeared. Um, but yeah, I had absolutely no idea what to expect or who would read it or, and like, so I don't know what, like now it's done quite well, but I'm like, did I, has it surpassed my expectations? I don't know because I just like had no idea. Everybody likes to talk about growing the sport and making professional, you know, track and field and distance running more popular. What is the industry doing right? And where are there opportunities for growth? I always find it hard to answer this question because I am like such a running nerd that I'm like, oh, it's perfect the way it is. Or, but like, I mean, I guess putting it on TV would help, um, you know, just like making it easier to watch. And I, I know that people are, more people are doing that recently. Like that was something I covered in last week's newsletter. But um, because if it's like, I, I don't like complaining about like the cost of flow track because, you know, like you can choose not to watch it. At least it exists. And um, I remember when it wasn't like, no one could watch anything. Um, but yeah, like making it more accessible in terms of watching it. Um, it frustrates me how poor a lot of the quality of the broadcasts are. And like everyone says, oh, you don't understand how hard it is to do commentary. But I just like I've seen people do it well, so I know it can be done well. And I just I feel like I, I do feel like this year they've been hiring more like different people, trying them out um, to see like what might work. But I just feel like there's a lot of the same old same old on some of these broadcasts. And um, it doesn't, I guess like when you don't tell someone's story, like 
it makes it harder for people to care. And there's like so many good stories in the sport and they miss them so much of the time. And it's just frustrating because it's like, if you just followed a little bit of the sport, you would know this stuff. Um, so yeah, I think telling the stories better. Um, the athletes are doing a good job of telling their stories, but it like shouldn't be all their job. For those listening, Noah and I are available to broadcast meets. We will be fun and entertaining. Uh, we're just going to plug that right there. Uh, as you, you, you focus more on the elite side of things. I know you've mentioned um, some D3 athletes in on your tweets or in the newsletter, but are you still keeping up with D3 results right now? I guess right now is not the correct term, but are you keeping up with D3? Yeah, I absolutely keep up with it. It's like, I think from coaching, like I learned you can care about anyone's like running accomplishments, like regardless of their speed, if you know their story and like where they, what their, what their goals are, what they're working towards. Um, like just because I would get so invested in some of those high school kids, like whether they wanted to like break 30 minutes in the 5k or, you know, win a state championship, it didn't matter. Um, and so I think I was a little bit more invested in division three when I knew like all, like all the names all the time. And like, um, I don't know, just like when, you, you saw them more on a regular basis and, and you knew like who everyone was and who to cheer for, but I definitely still look at the results all the time. And like when Annie Rodenfels was running well um, at the end of her college career, like I was really excited for her and I'm glad that she's a pro runner now. And it's just, I always cheer a little extra for the division three athletes. Who are some women um, past or present that you would like to hear an interview with who maybe hasn't gotten the attention they deserve trying to think like who I can name that like wouldn't be totally biased because like you wouldn't know well Shawnine um Garahan Whirlinger now you should talk to her she uh what did she do at nationals one year like doubled she had that crazy triple right where yeah. it was like or maybe even yeah like 10k 5k 1500 or steeple 10k 5k something insane and when she won all three of them yeah so I, I really like Shawnine and I have not heard from her in years so we could catch up via podcast <laughs> That'd be a good one. I would stare at her at the record board and it'd just be like her name down like the side of the list on the, on the Amherst record board. So it's something uh, we, we should get get to for sure. No, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned uh, still kind of covering and getting happy for D3 runners because Maya Weigel, you, I think you tweeted it out um, when Sound Running 10K. I was like, why does that name sound so familiar? And so we want to thank you for tweeting about it because then I was like, wait, why is the name familiar? I quickly went on Tifers and sure enough, she was from Pomona. Where do you want to see your platform, your newsletter go in the next three to four years? I've been thinking about that recently, but I still don't have an answer. I think I only want to see it go where like it makes sense. Um, like if it, if doing exactly what I'm doing now and continuing to do that, that like that could be enough or, um, you know, I've thought before about like, should I have a better website that like is more of a, you know, like you can get more daily updates there. Um, but I also like, there is just so much stuff out there and that's part of like what, why the newsletter exists is like to try to help comb through all of it. So I'm not, if I put something else out, I wanna just make sure that it like contributes to, you know, help like helping people follow the sport or telling more stories because I feel like sometimes there's so much duplication of things that it, doesn't really like it's just more noise as we get close to a wrap here and want to touch on something you mentioned and i mentioned in uh more than running the podcast again with dana giordano you mentioned you kind of had a rough way to end your coaching career having been an assistant coach for five or six years and kind of understanding the the low pay long work days um you know you mentioned the women in coaching the percentages is pretty low. It's not pretty low. It's very low. You know, what are some ways that you think sports in colleges can do a better way to support coaches, but specifically women in coaching? Yeah. I mean, that's difficult because I, I felt like as a woman, I did get more interviews than other people did. Like I got a lot of interviews, but I never felt like I was like frequently didn't feel like I was being seriously considered for the job. It was just sort of like, we got to interview a woman. So I just felt like it's sort of like a, oh, it depends on the school because some of them are doing it better than others. But um, I think it's like, you have to support it, that person in every way. And that's, you know, like when I had twins, it was not a, like, they were like, oh, you're the first person in, you know, 20 years to have, or maybe the first coach ever to have 
children um, in our department, so we don't really know what to do with you. And I had to like go home to nurse. Um, I think that was like a bad extreme. Like, I don't think it would have been like that everywhere. Um, but I think there's just like some really simple things you can do to like make someone's life harder or easier and um, anything you can do to make it easier when they do have kids um, for one. Um, I think I, it depends on the school for me too, but like, I think there needs to be more flexibility in the work hours sometimes. Like I was in one job where they were like, you need to be here nine to five. And I'm like, well, we also work like later than five and then all weekend. Um, so I think there, you can build more flexibility into the schedule and not be strict about that kind of stuff. Um, I think there's just so many and it depends on the school, but I, I think, I just feel like the pandemic in general is sort of showing us that like, you know, some of our work models are like, don't need to be as strict as they are. And I think if we can be more flexible, anytime you can be more flexible and trust that a person's going to give it their best and like cares about the team, like then don't be so rigid about like how everything else about it works. I've listened to podcasts where like, I think it was still G Taylor from BYU said that they had like childcare going with her, like to like from the school provided by the school or something like that. I don't want to put wrong words in her mouth, but like anything you can do like that, that could make it such a huge difference. Cause when I had twins, I was making $30,000 a year and paying $23,000 in daycare costs. So like, I mean, it just like, it doesn't, and then like all the other, like then you have to pay for extra childcare on the weekends too, when you're away for the whole thing. So yeah, there's a lot of like basic things that I don't understand why there's not in place and maybe they are in places some some places but I also think I was at a major disadvantage being a cross-country and track coach because it was not one like especially the school where I was when I had kids it was like such a low down like in the terms of the priorities it was so low they were practically going to drop the program so like I think if you're a you know basketball coach at that same school like the experience could be really different um, in some schools like are a little bit more even about how they treat their athletic program Allison, before we let you go, and we'll link all of this in the show notes, but could you let everyone know where they can find you and find your work? On Twitter, I have to think about this. I am fast underscore women on Instagram, fast women, no space. Um, and there's a fastwomen.org, fast-women.org website where um, there's not a lot of content, but you can subscribe to the newsletter there. Awesome. And like I said, everybody can just scroll down on their podcast app and we'll have the links there. Really want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, it was great to talk to you and we really appreciate your presence in the sport and, uh, and the coverage you provide. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you guys. Right, that wraps up another episode of D3 Glory Days. Thanks to our guest, Allison. We really appreciate her time and her insights. Um, a reminder of those announcements we made at the top of the show. Let's see, we've got the D3 replacement meet. Sign up for that if you're interested. We are hiring an intern. If you think you may have the skills to help us, check the show notes for how to apply. And finally, if you'd like to support this podcast with your dollars, you can buy us a coffee. There's a link to do that in our show notes and on our website. Looking forward to bringing some more content your way. We're going to have a big announcement, a huge announcement before our next episode. But until then, here's to the glory days.